Hello everyone, welcome to the Like the World Podcast, and I'm your host, LT World, and on this channel we talk about the things people don't like to talk about. We talk about politics, we talk about religion, and we talk about ideologies. If that sounds like something you're into, join us as we take a look at the things that drive culture. Do you really despise religious belief? I despise people whose belief in religion is so firm it justifies killing people. Inside, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult had taken their own lives. Once in a while I get people that really claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, oh, why not? We can't even begin to describe a living creature in anything resembling precise terms. Where do the laws of physics come from? It's, it's a question that doesn't work for me on multiple levels of analysis. Does God exist? Have you ever heard something that sounds intelligent, but at the same time you think, sounds like nothing at all? That's how a lot of people react to the ontological argument. The ontological argument was first proposed by St. Anselm in the medieval time period around 1078. And it's supposed to be purely a conceptual argument for the existence of God. And as the, as the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy puts it, the ontological arguments are arguments for the conclusion that God exists from premises which are supposed to derive from some other source than an observation of the world. Example, from reason alone. And a very common argument structure, one of the most common ontological arguments out there, goes like this. The first premise, nothing greater than God can be conceived. This is stipulated as part of the definition of God. Point two, it is greater to exist than not to exist. Point three, if we conceive of God as not existing, then we can conceive of something greater than God. Point four, to conceive of God as not existing is not to conceive of God. Point five, it is incon inconceivable that God does not exist. Point six, God exists. So as you can tell, this can be a really uh, confusing to some people, to a lot of people actually, because it's so abstract and conceptual that it doesn't really have any practical or tangible roots to it, like the creation argument and stuff like that. So we're going to take a little bit of time just to break it down one more time, just to kind of explain each premise and go into a little bit more detail before we jump into some of the arguments and debates about the ontological argument. So let's do that. So premise number one, nothing greater than God can be conceived. This is a definitional thing. This would mean that God must be the most perfect, most greatest being within the universe. There can be nothing above him or greater than him. There can be nothing more powerful, nothing more loving, nothing more charitable. So that's why often God is described as omnipotent omnipresent, omniscient, um, all these things, all these omnis, because he must be, by definition, the most perfect and greatest being morally and powerfully and in all attributes. So God is the greatest being alive, greatest being to conceivably exist. So that is premise number one. Most people can get their minds around that. Now, premise number two is greater to exist than not to exist. So Again, this one's pretty straightforward in of itself. It's combining some of these individual premises that can get confusing. But to exist is better than not to exist. An existing umbrella is better than a not existing umbrella. It's kind of the idea. So to exist is better to, than not to exist, which leads us into premise three. If we conceive of God as not existing, then we can conceive of something greater than God. Because existing is great. Since existing is greater than not existing, and God, by definition, must be the greatest being conceivably. If we can conceive of God not existing, we can conceive of something greater than God because there's things out there that do exist, which would then, by definition, need to be greater than God because they exist, making them 
the greatest thing or greatest being in the universe or in all possible worlds. So this is leading us down a train of thought here, which leads us into premise four, to conceive of God as not existing is not to conceive of God. However, if we can conceive of God not existing, we are not conceiving of God at all. We are conceiving of something that's not even possible because by definition, God must be the greatest being. So God must be the greatest being, premise one. Premise two, existing is better than not existing or existing is greater than not existing. Premise three, if we can, exist, if we can think of God not existing, then we can think of something that's greater than God, making that the most maximally ultimate being, which in a way you're still making that to be God of the universe. Which leads us into premise four, to not be able to conceptualize God existing is not to even think of God. Because something will become God in its place definitionally by becoming the greatest being and thing in the universe. If we're trying to say that God does not exist because other things exist. Which leads us into point five, is inconceivable that God does not exist because definitionally it doesn't make any sense. There will be a greatest being, there will be something greater out there. Which leads into point six, God therefore must exist because you can't conceive of anything greater than the conception of God. The most ultimate, most powerful being out there, the most loving being out there, who, since existing is greater than not existing, must exist. That is how the argument goes. It can still be really abstract and confusing. Hopefully I did my best to kind of explain and bring the points together. Um, but we'll see if we can flesh it out even further as we go through some other arguments and rebuttals about this argument. But that is the six-point argument in a nutshell. The one of the earlier skeptics who kind of disagreed with the ontological argument and gave his reason for it was Immanuel Kant, an Enlightenment thinker, who didn't like the ontological argument because it used existence as a quality, kind of like ten fingers or being loving. Kant thought that was circular. You, you can't use existence as a attribute because all things, by definition, need to exist. And the whole point of the a whole point of an argument for God's existence is to prove that He exists. So you can't use um, a definition or a character of God being existence, saying God exists, and therefore saying that proves that God exists by saying that God necessarily needs to exist, isn't an argument. It's circular. You're using the conclusion as the premise. So Kant didn't really like the idea of using existence as a quality or an attribute. He didn't think it fit within the same realm. A philosopher that agrees with Immanuel Kant and who used an analogy to get her point across is Rebecca Goldstein, which I've referenced to before in the past. Now I'm going to read directly from her words to give you an idea of what she thinks and she agrees with Immanuel Kant as far as her reasoning goes. If you really could treat existence as just part of the definition of the concept of God, then you could just as easily build it into the definition of any other concept. We could, with the wave of our verbal magic wand, define a trunicorn as a horse that has a, a single horn on its head and, premise B, exists. So if you think about a trunicorn, you're thinking about something that must, by definition, exist. Therefore, trunicorns exist. This is clearly absurd. We could use this line of reasoning for anything. So that's kind of her little analogy using unicorns to show how absurd or weird the ontological argument can be because it's using existence as a quality rather than as something else separate from equality. And she believes this could be used to argue in the case for anything if we just definitionally say it must exist or definitionally say it must be great because of its existence. I think her analogy or her example is pretty good. I think it could use some refining to make it stronger because the main premise of the ontological argument is that God is great, the greatest being. And a unicorn by definition is not the greatest being, so therefore may not necessarily need to exist because it doesn't need to be the greatest being. 
and existence is a attribute that must make a being the greatest. So I think her argument might fall a little bit short in that case because unicorns, again, by definition, aren't the greatest. They would then become God if they are the greatest. However, I think her argument could be refined to be, make a stronger point if worded sort of like this. Um, I'll, I'll give you kind of my little example of her unicorn sample. I can conceive of unicorns and they are greater than regular horses. Since regular horses exist and unicorns are conceivably better than horses and it's greater to exist than not to exist, unicorns must exist since horses exist. That would be kind of a similar line of reasoning. If, if I can conceive of something greater than a horse and a horse exists because we know it exists, by definition, and because I can conceive of something greater than that, that anything I can conceive of greater than a horse must be able to exist. That is sort of the kind of, I think, a stronger analogy or a stronger point because it's using a layering sort of pattern. However, there is a theistic philosopher, William Lane Craig. He's a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University who finds the traditional sort of ontological argument compelling despite these sort of rebuttals. And he kind of modifies the ontological argument a little bit but remains with the main six premises read. So he takes the unicorn example from Rebecca and he challenges it on the basis of possible worlds. Now, William Lane Craig defines possible, world, possible worlds as follows. A possible world is just a way the world might have been. It's a complete description of reality. So a possible world is not a planet or a universe or any kind of concrete object. It's just a world description. The actual world is the description that is true. Other possible worlds are descriptions that might have been true, but are not in fact true. So his sort of rebuttal about the unicorn example is that unicorns could possibly exist in some worlds. Here's a clip of him talking about this idea that unicorns could possibly exist in some worlds. To say that something exists in some possible world is to say that there is some description of reality which includes that entity. To say that something exists in every possible world is to say that no matter which description is true, the entity will be included in that description. So, for example, unicorns do not in fact exist, but there is some possible world in which unicorns exist. On the other hand, many mathematicians think that numbers exist in every possible world. They exist necessarily. Unicorns aren't maximally great, so therefore they don't necessarily need to be able to exist in this world or in all possible worlds. But because God is, by definition, the greatest being out there, he must, to be the greatest being, be able to exist in all possible worlds. That would make him greater. You can conceive of something greater of God if, you, if God or if a being didn't exist in all possible worlds. It wouldn't, become, it wouldn't be the greatest being anymore. It would need to be able to exist in all possible worlds, including our own. So that is sort of William McCraig's rebuttal against Rebecca's argument and even Immanuel Kant's argument to a certain extent. My thoughts on the ontological argument, I, I think it's kind of compelling. I think it's really abstract, so therefore it's kind of impractical to use in any sort of real argument, I think, with an everyday person especially. But I think there is one major flaw that I just can't really say the ontological argument is a great argument. It's the fact that just because I can conceive of something doesn't necessarily mean it needs to necessarily exist. I don't think you can go from conception to existence 
uh, like the ontological argument proposes. Just because I can conceive of something doesn't mean it exists now. It doesn't mean I can, it now comes into existence. So for instance, if we take unicorns, I have an idea of what a unicorn is and I can conceptualize a unicorn because there are things that I know that are real, things I know that do exist that I can piece together to make the unicorn. I know that horses exist because I've seen a horse. I know that horns exist because I've seen horns. I know that flying is a possibility because I've seen things fly. And therefore I can combine these qualities together on things that I already know to conceptualize and imagine something that doesn't exist using qualities that I can observe. Likewise, I can observe many things that I would attribute to God. So things like love, power, um, intelligence, stuff like that. Things I can observe, things I can notice in the real world that I could piece, piece and patch together to make something ultimate or something great. And I can conceive of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean now it exists. Just because I can conceive of something or piece something together doesn't mean it by necessity needs to exist. So that is sort of my biggest hang up with the ontological argument. I'm less concerned about existence being a quality and more concerned with the jump from conceptualizing something to actual existence. I don't, I don't see, I don't see how you can make that jump. So that is my biggest hang up with the ontological argument. Although I do think it is a good argument from the standpoint of possibility. I don't necessarily think it gets you all the way there like it tries to. So that's sort of my take on the ontological argument. Uh, let me know what you think in the comments below and let me know what your thoughts are as far as the ontolo ontological argument goes. So thank you for listening guys. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you guys keep going out there and like the world. If you would like to learn more about how to like the world, subscribe to whatever podcast platform you're listening to and follow along because we would love to have you and we continue to cover topics like this down the road and you can grow in your understanding and in your knowledge of these different important topics that we deal with every day. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. On these outlets, I ask questions, I run pools, people can DM me, and I'm going to do some more special content on there anyway. So definitely follow along there and join the Like the World community. And you can also subscribe to my YouTube channel if you like video content and I post some extra videos on there occasionally. So follow along, join the community, and we're going to have a good time learning more about the important topics of life.